0: We are going through a series of Hebrews chapter 11. A couple of these verses, as we look at them, point us back to Old Testament text. And so we jump back to the Old Testament to look at those. Right now, we're in a series of those that we need to jump back to the Old Testament, kind of see what's going on here in the book of Hebrews. And so we've gone through Hebrews, and then we, last time we talked, we were in chapter 11, verse 20, where it said, "'By faith, Isaac invoked a future blessing on Jacob and Esau.'" So we looked at that passage. Today we're looking at verse 21 where it says, By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. That passage is Genesis chapter 48. So if you have your Bibles this morning or your electronic devices or whatever you're using, and I know that you have something, flip them, open them, scroll to them, click them, whatever you need to do to get to Genesis chapter 48 Genesis chapter 48 is a chapter of 22 verses, and we're going to be looking at all 22 verses this morning, but I think our time will go rather quick in looking at that, and then I have some points of application for you. It's a narrative passage. A lot of times with narrative passages, you don't give the main idea of the passage up front because it stills the thunder of the narrative story. You know, a story usually starts out, gives you context, rolls through, leads to a point, you have a resolution, you give that point at the very end. This particular story, though, doesn't really fold out that way, so I'm going to give you the central idea of the text right up front so you can think through that idea of the text as we walk through this narrative portion. I believe the central idea of Genesis chapter 48 is that Jacob has learned that God is faithful to be with you and to keep his promises. Jacob has learned that God's faithful. He's going to be with him, He was with him through a whole lot of circumstances that we will briefly gloss over, but he was also faithful to his promises. If there's one thing that we could all do to learn and to live by daily on a constant basis is that if you are a believer in Christ, God is with you. He is with you even when you don't think he's there, and he's going to keep his promises. The promises He's given us in His Word, He is faithful to those. He will keep those. And so the central idea of our text as we walk through this is that Jacob has learned that God is faithful to be with you and to keep His promises. let me try to set it up this way. Oftentimes in life, we feel like the Christian life should be this cookie-cutter type life. You live life, you get saved, the cookie-cutter comes out, it presses into the dough of flesh, You pop out something that looks perfect, you trim off the edges so that it's in great shape, and then you have the perfect cookie-cutter Christian. At least that's what we often communicate to others that we think should happen. You repent, you believe, Jesus, sends the Holy Spirit comes into your life, Jesus saves you, God saves you, and then at that point forward, it's all perfect. Unfortunately, that's not what happens. We have baggage. We have baggage from past bad decisions that we have made, We have baggage from the sinful flesh that causes us to have temptations and urges that we sometimes give into. We have baggage because we live in a fallen world and this fallen world causes us to give into things that we shouldn't want to give into. We have baggage because there are tragedies that have happened to us Perhaps even no fault of our own tragedies have come into our life that were beyond our circumstances or controls, and they have affected us, they've affected the way we view life, they've affected the way we live, they, they have left scars on us that we're trying to get over or that we're trying to live through, and we don't look like that perfect little cookie. Now, truth be known, I believe most of us aren't those perfect little cookies, we like to think we are on the outside, but deep inside, I think most of us have issues and problems and things that we're struggling with. We just don't like everybody else to know about those issues. I'm thankful that when God gave us his word, that God didn't give us a list of perfect cookie-cutter Christians all throughout the Old Testament. And today, we're going to look at one of those in the Old Testament whose life is up and down and up and down and up and down, and he may be one of the most inconsistent people in the Old Testament when it comes to living a life of faith. And yet, when you think about Jacob, what was Jacob's name changed to? Israel. So who's the father of the nation of Israel? Well, it's Abraham, it's Isaac, and it's Jacob whose name was changed to Israel, and 12 tribes come from him. And so here in God's grace, what I want you to understand is that if you're here this morning, perhaps you look around sometimes and you think to yourself, gosh, do I fit here? I don't, I don't, I don't look like everybody else, perhaps, or I don't, I don't feel like I act like everybody else, or I don't, I I have these issues. I don't know if anybody else has these struggles or temptations. I want to say to you that God is with you and God is faithful to his promises there are different people in this room right now. Some of you are rule followers. How many of you would say, I'm a rule follower? There are a few of you. No student discipline, all right. We, you know, I'm not, you're not confession time. I know there are some of you because I get behind you driving through town, and you go 33 in a 35. You go 22 and a 25. And I have to repent after I turn off from being behind you because I can't drive I'm not the rule follower that looks at a 25 mile an hour speed limit and says I have to go 24 or below. How many of you are like that? You're going to go below the speed limit. You're not going to confess because we don't like to ride behind you. But I've ridden behind you (laughs) because I see those. We got one honest person in the back. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. There are some of you in the room that you really want everybody on the outside to think you're that rule follower, but deep inside you got issues. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. There are some of you in the room who you like everybody to think you're the rebel, but you're really not the rebel. And so you'll drive over the speed limit, but only by two miles per hour or four miles per hour (laughs) or whatever you think you can get away with without getting a ticket because you don't want the consequences of that. And so you're like me. If it's 35 or if it's under 55 or 55 even, it's four miles an hour over the speed limit because the cop will let you off if it's four miles an hour over. And if you're on the interstate, it's nine miles an hour over because the cop will let you off at nine. You never hit 10. And you're very intentional to never hit the penalty because you you don't want to be the rule follower, but you don't want to get in trouble either. And so you're kind of like those people who left the pumpkin and the cone at my doorstep last night so that I would find the note that said, hi, Jerry, on the front door this morning. You wanted to do something that was against the rules, but you didn't want to go far enough to get in trouble. So... By the way, that pumpkin was pretty cool. I don't know where it is, but it, it, who did it? But it looks really nice. So there are some of you that are like that. And then there are some of you, you just have a rebellious spirit. He's deceitful. Jacob was deceitful. And yet God used him. And God used rule followers God used those that wanted people to think he was following the rules, and they really weren't. God used those who who in their hearts were rule followers, but wanted to look like they weren't on the exterior. And God used people who were deceptive and deceitful all throughout. And so Genesis chapter 48, let's roll through this and look at this, and then I'll get to about four points of application for you. Would you stand in the honor of the reading of God's word as we read the first few verses here? Genesis chapter 48 says, After this, Jacob was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel, and notice the change there from Jacob to Israel. It flips back and forth all throughout, but Jacob's name was changed to Israel, so it's talking about the same person. So then Israel summoned his strength and set up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the, na- in the land of Cana and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And will make of you a great company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are mine. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan. To my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Cana on the way when there was yet some still distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Dear Lord, as we look at your word today, we pray that you would be lifted up. God, we pray that we'd be honest with where we are with you, because Lord, you already know. And so Lord, we pray today that you would show us your grace your beauty, your majesty, your glory, and that you would help us just to catch a glimpse of that in our lives and to understand that you truly are faithful. You're trustworthy. Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What we see here happening in Genesis chapter 48 is we just finished Genesis chapter 47 where... Jacob talked to Joseph, and he said to Joseph, I'm going to die. I don't want to be buried here. Take me out and bury me somewhere else. And he gives him the place where he wants him to bury so that he would be buried where Abraham and Isaac were buried. He didn't want to be in that location. And so apparently funeral arrangements were being made. He was getting old. He was getting weaker. As funeral arrangements began to be made, he still hadn't passed on yet. And in chapter 48, it says, After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father's ill. It's kind of like that phone call you get that says your know, grandpa or grandma's taken a turn for the worse we need you to come home or mom and dad have taken a turn for the worse we need you to come home and here joseph gets that phone call your dad is ill you need to come so he took with him his two sons manasseh and ephraim and you'll notice here in the text it says manasseh and ephraim in that order because manasseh was the older son ephraim was the younger son and so as it's telling the story to set up the scene it mentions manasseh first ephraim second And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. So then Israel, and you'll see the switch between the name there of Jacob, and Jacob, we know, means the deceiver, the one who is constantly trying to overcome, the one who is striving to overcome. The name switches to Israel, and you know from your Old Testament history that Jacob wrestled with the angel who was Jesus, and Israel is what his name was changed to, and as he was changed to that name, Israel means the one who has striven with man and God and overcome. And so, here Israel is mentioned to remind us of the past of Jacob and everything that's in the context of the book of Genesis. So, Israel's in bed. He's sick. He's about to die. He struggles with his strength because his son comes in. Maybe you can relate, maybe you can't. But you're in a moment of weakness. You're in a moment of where you're really hurting, but somebody walks in and you don't want them to see you in that moment of weakness. The last thing you want them to have in their mind is a picture of weakness as one of their last memories of you. And so you gather up all your strength and you strain and you do everything you can to muster up that strength and to sit up. And so he got his strength, he sat up in bed, and then Jacob said to Joseph, and he begins a testimony here that's in quotes. And he says, God Almighty. Now what I want to point to right here is what's not in the text. He begins with God Almighty, and then he talks about the promise that God made to him at the place that he renamed Bethel. But what he doesn't start with, and you remember the life and the story of Jacob, and you remember some of what we discussed last time, Jacob was a deceiver. He doesn't start with the fact when he's talking to Joseph at the end of his life and say, Joseph, he's pretty good at deception." Remember that time that I took the birthright from my brother just because I had some red stew ready when he was coming back and he was really hungry and thought he was going to die? Yeah, that was pretty slick. You remember that time I deceived my dad and we did all this elaborate study and, you know... My mom took care of baking the the goat and made it all taste just right, and we put the the fur on my hand so that when he touched, he would feel, and I even put on my brother's clothes so that I could be deceptive in the smell and smell like my brother, and we deceived my dad, and I stole my brother's blessing too. That's not where he starts when he's giving his testimony. When he's giving his testimony here, where does he start? He starts with not what I've done, but he starts with what God has done. And I think there's a lesson for us here in our life is that sooner or later in our walk Christ. We need to move past the look what I've done and look at me and the focus on myself. And we need to move to that point where we're recognizing that God all along has been the one doing it. God gave us abilities that even if we were faithful in those abilities, they come from him. He's orchestrated the circumstances. He's the one that's allowed all this to take place. And so our testimony, and even when we share our testimony, our testimony with others should not be look what I've done. Our testimony of our profession of faith with others is not look at the decision I've made. Our testimony with others is look at what God has done. God is the one that is faithful. He is the one that has loved us and has created us and has graciously sent his son to die for us and has given us the Holy Spirit to live within us. He is the one that is with us in the bad times and the good times that wants us to succeed in life and to do great things in life for his honor and his glory and to use us in his great purpose. It's all about God. And the sooner we get the me out of the way so we can focus on God, the better we're gonna live the Christian life. He starts God Almighty. God Almighty appeared to me. He appeared to me in the land of Canaan, and He blessed me, and He said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. This is the promise that you will recognize that was repeated from Genesis and repeated in Abraham and repeated to Isaac and was repeated to Jacob. And now Jacob is recounting this promise as an old man, and he has about 75 descendants and so God has multiplied him. He has seen some of the fruit of this promise, but he still doesn't live in the promised land yet. That promise has still not been fulfilled. And yet, here he remembers the promise and he says, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring for an everlasting possession, which has not happened yet. He says, And now your two sons Jacob. He spent 17 years of his life with Joseph before Joseph was sold into slavery. He has spent the last 17 years of his life with Joseph in Egypt, and now he looks and he says, your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. And notice he flips the order. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine. Now what's happening here, as you look at this text, is he is, for the purposes of of the tribes of Israel and for the land granting, he is adopting the two oldest sons of Joseph to be his own sons in place of his two oldest sons. And so he's saying, they are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And so you think about this and you think immediately, why in the world would this take place? What in the world is he up to? Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob. He should have been the one to inherit everything. But when we think about Reuben, we remember some of the things that Reuben did, right? So we think about the thing that Reuben slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah. We look here and we see also Simeon and we think about Simeon and you remember the story of where their sister was defiled and she was raped. And so the brothers hatch a plan, and their plan is that they're going to get revenge. And so they go and they deal deceitfully with Shechem. And then at a time when Shechem is hurting from what they've asked them to do, they go in and they kill all the men, and they deceitfully take out all the men of that town and destroy it. And that places Jacob's existence and his family's existence in jeopardy. And so what you see unfolding throughout the book of Genesis and the Pentateuch is that Reuben and Simeon then they kind of fade off the scene, whereas you see Ephraim and Manasseh pop up as two of the greater tribes. And here it says, and the children that you father after them, they're yours. They're not gonna be mine. But these two, they shall be called by the name of their brothers in the inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan. Now, why does he mention Rachel here? We don't know. We can only imagine that he's looking at Joseph and as Jacob is looking at Joseph and he's talking to Joseph and Joseph perhaps cracks that smile in just a certain way, or perhaps he turns that eye a certain way, and looking into the face of Joseph, at that point in time, Jacob remembers the one whom he loved the most, Rachel, and remembers her death as it occurred, because there's a similarity there in in Rachel's firstborn, and it pops to his mind, and he says, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way that is in Bethlehem. And we see here a shift then in what the story happens. We see in verse 8 that it turns to a blessing then of Ephraim and Manasseh. In verse 8, it says, Israel saw Joseph's sons. Now, we learn later that his eyes were dim. He had a hard time seeing. So we don't know if the sons were standing there all along and he just didn't see them. We don't know what was happening. But all of a sudden, he realizes, wait a second, there are other people there with him. And so in the text shifts in verse 8, and he says, Israel saw Joseph's sons. And he said, who are these? Maybe he couldn't see them clearly. Maybe he was asking that rhetorical question. But when he says, "Who is these?" Joseph says to his father, and notice what he says: "These are my sons, whom God has given me here." It's important to realize that Joseph knew that his offspring was a gift of God, and even from the naming of those that God has given him, you caused me to forget my troubles, to forget. My father's household, you've caused me to be fruitful and prosperous in the land that you have sent me to. And so he's even named them after what God has done. And then he says, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Verse 10, it says, now Israel's eyes were dim with age. Oh, and immediately our mind pops back. Dimness of eyes. You remember a story about the dimness of eyes? A story pops right back into our mind about Jacob and his early years as the deceiver and he could not see. And perhaps even in Jacob's mind, as he looks out, he puts himself in his father's position as he cannot see clearly. And his senses are dulled as he's there at the end of his life, and he's offering a blessing. And so it brings all of this back to mind quickly here as we see it. And then he says, "'Joseph brought them near to him, and he kissed them, and he embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, "'I never expected to see your face.'" And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. He recognizes God's blessing to him here and that he sees Joseph. And then he also sees his offspring. So then it says Joseph removed them from his knees. And I'm not sure exactly how to explain that portion of the text. As we've studied this, Joseph's sons would have been between 18 and 20 years old. I'm not sure what in the world they were doing on his knees or what that expression means. And so you can figure that out and send me an email and let me know once you find out. But he, he says he removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth and it says Joseph took both of them. Ephraim was in his right hand and he moved him toward Israel's left hand. Manasseh was in his left hand and he moved him toward Israel's right hand. And so intentionally here, Joseph has taken his oldest and his next to oldest, and he has placed them in such a way so that when his father Jacob reaches out, that he's going to reach out and he's going to place his right hand on the older, his left hand on the younger, and he's going to give the proper blessing to the oldest son in that order. And then look at what happens here in verse 14. Israel stretched out his right hand and he laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand and he laid it on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands for Manasseh was the firstborn. And so here, Jacob understands clearly what he's doing as he crosses his arms to put them on top. So maybe his eyes weren't as dim as we thought they were. And yet here he crosses them over and it was Warren Weersby who said it's just like God to use any metaphor to bring the cross into any story in the Old Testament. I don't know that crossing an arm really gets us to the cross, but it was an interesting quote anyway. And so here he crosses his arms and he's going to bless them and listen to the blessing here. It starts off and it says in the blessing, "The God down a couple lines, the God down a couple of lines, the angel It's that triune mention of the God, the God, the angel. And he said, the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac walked. And so he's refreshing and referring. And in the text here, it's reminding all of the listeners who are gonna listen to this. This is the same God that Abraham and Isaac walked. This is the God that is the God of my fathers. And then he says in the next line, the God who has been my shepherd. And so it's not David who first started talking about God the father as the shepherd. Here we see it's Jacob who initially refers to God as being my shepherd. And you can only imagine in the life of Jacob, who tended to all of those sheep and to all of those goats for Leah and for Rachel, he understood about the life of a shepherd. He understood the detailed intricacies of the life of a shepherd. And he understood how dumb those sheep could be at some times, and how stubborn those animals could be as he was trying to shepherd them and guard them and protect them. And as we look at the text, we understand that Jacob probably was in God's eyes, something of one of those sheep or one of those goats, and that he kept doing bad things or dumb things. He was up and down. He wasn't consistent. He wasn't like Joseph, who was his son, and that in every instance, Joseph took integrity and took the high road, and Joseph was the ultimate example. There's a contrast that's set up here between Jacob, the deceiver, and Joseph, who is the man of integrity. And here he says, the God before whom my fathers walked, the God who has been my shepherd, All my life to this day. And he recognized that even in the downtimes, even in the rebellious periods, God was the shepherd to this day. And he says the angel. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. What a theologically rich statement that is when he refers back to the angel and we understand that's the Christophany in the Old Testament, a reference to Christ as Jacob wrestled with Christ. He's redeemed me from all evil. He blessed the boys. He said, in them, let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And there's something to be learned here that we'll come back to later. But in this passage of scripture, we see that Joseph's children replaced Jacob's children because of the evil that they had done. And the Bible teaches us all throughout that we reap what we sow. We'll come back to that and hit that again in a minute. When Joseph saw that his father had laid the right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took his father's hand and he went to move it. He grabs his dad's hand and he goes to move it across to Manasseh's head and Joseph says to his father, not this way, my father. Perhaps he thought his father couldn't see. Perhaps he, he thought he had just forgotten or messed something up. And Not this way, father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and he said, I know, my son, I know. He shall become a people and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, the younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day. Understanding our theology of the Old Testament, you understand that the older often was replaced by the younger. So how many older siblings do we have in the room? If you're the oldest, raise your hand. Yeah, we don't, we don't like this passage. This is not fair. There's, there's, it's God. He does whatever He wants, right? How many of you are the youngest child in the family? <laughs> today you win. That's okay. All of us who are the older, we had our vengeance and our time while you were younger, and all those jokes we played on you, and all those things we got you in trouble for that mom and dad never knew about. And so today, though, you win. All throughout the Old Testament, think about it. Seth and Cain, Isaac was the younger, Abraham's first son was Ishmael, Jacob was the younger, he was blessed rather than Esau, Joseph was the younger, he was blessed over Reuben, Ephraim was the younger, he was blessed over Manasseh, Moses was the younger, Gideon was the younger, David was the younger, and over and over you see that God does things His way. There's a practical application for us there too. We may have the traditions of man all set up and how we want things to operate, but God doesn't operate by our rules. God sets the rules. And so sometimes when we think God's got to act and do things exactly like we want him to, that's not the case and that's not what we see here. And we see this blessing that's talked about and we see that blessing fulfilled when you look into numbers and when you look into the future that you see that Ephraim did grow up to be better than what Manasseh was in the tribes and we don't have time to go into that but it continues there. And then it concludes here in verse 21, where it says this, then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you. Remember our central idea of the text here at the end, he comes back, he makes the point, God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. God's going to keep his promises. God's made this promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and now it's continuing on. God's going to keep his promises. We know from the Old Testament that he does. And then he says, moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers the one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with the sword and with my bow. What's our central idea? Jacob, at the end of his life, had learned God's going to be with you, and God's going to be faithful to his promises. So how do we apply this? My first application to you is that the Christian life is not a fairy tale story. We look at the life of Jacob. We understand he had many ups and downs, but we understand that God was still faithful throughout them all. Think about all the things that happened. Think about the first time that Jacob used the name of God. You remember back to our last sermon that we looked at, where Jacob told his father, The Lord your God gave me success as he was asking him, How did you kill the game so quickly? And so the first time that we have recorded in Scripture that Jacob mentions God, it was deceitful and it was lying. Think about all of Jacob's troubles in his life. Some of you are here and you've had bad things happen in your life, and you've had things happen that maybe I don't understand or some others don't understand because there are tragedies in your life. And I want you to understand that God can take those tragedies and turn them into good things and triumphs, and we're going to talk about that some more too. But think about Jacob and his troubles. His father liked his brother more than him. He wasn't a hunter. He was a shepherd. His father liked the wild game. His brother was the masculine, manly man. He was the hairy guy. He was the one that dad loved. His brother, who was also very dangerous because he was a hunter, hated him. He had to go live with his uncle Laban, who cheated him. Bible says he changed his wages no less than 10 times. He was deceived and did not marry Rachel, but married Leah. Laban actually deceived him even in the marriage. And after working for seven years, he had to work seven more for Rachel. Now, this is completely for free. But ladies, if you ever have a guy that tells you that he doesn't, he can't wait or something like that, then here's your response to him. You say, why don't you love me as much as Jacob loved Rachel? He worked for seven years. And then he worked for seven years more. That's for free. I'll stop right there. (laughs) His daughter was raped. His sons avenged their sister's rape by destroying everybody in the town. Rachel, his beloved wife, died. Reuben, his son, lay with Bilhah, his concubine. His children, oh, they were great, right? They sold their brother into slavery. And then they took the coat put blood on it, deceived their dad and said, your favorite son's dead. Judah, his son then, sleeps with a prostitute who really turns out to be his daughter-in-law and that's another sermon for another time and another day. He experienced a great famine and he never realized the blessings of the promised land. Here's a guy who had tragedy and at the end of his life, what does he say to his son on his deathbed as his last words that he wants his son to get? He looks to his son and he says, look, God's gonna be with you. God's going to give you those promises that he's talked about. So today, we should take to heart the wisdom of Jacob at the end of his life. Hopefully not repeat the mistakes he made during his life. And listen to him when he says to us, no matter what you're going through, no matter how hard the semester is, no matter how hard your job is, no matter what's going on in relationships, no matter how difficult your roommate is to live with, no matter what's going on in the family life back home, no matter what's happening in all these circumstances, God is with you and God will be faithful to his promises, and that's what we need to take with us. You know, sometimes we look around. Sometimes we're guilty of looking down our noses at people who are still struggling with things. Come on, aren't you past that? Come on, get your act together. And what I want to say to those who are struggling is we're all struggling. And when somebody looks down their nose at you, that's a struggle of pride in and of itself. Don't ever let anybody make you feel like you don't belong as part of God's family and as one of his servants. Whatever you're struggling with, keep struggling to overcome it. But God is faithful because he's with you and he will keep his promises. Second point that I want us to get out of this is Jacob's life demonstrates the principle of reaping what you sow. Think about Jacob and his dim eyesight and how he took advantage of his father's dim eyesight and then remember back to Laban who in the dark deceived him by sneaking in Leah rather than Rachel and the next morning he gets up and he says, what have you done to me? You know he thought when he got up, what have you done to me in the dark where he couldn't see? He had to think at some point in his time, well, this has only happened because it's what I did in my past. I sowed this, now I'm reaping this. I sowed deceit, now I'm reaping deceit. You think about the clothes that he put on that were his brothers so that he would smell like his brother as he went into his father and was deceitful. And you think about the coat of many colors that he received back with the blood as those clothes were used to be deceitful when his children deceived him to say, your favorite son is dead. And he had to think at some point in time later on in his life about the clothes he wore in deceit that came back to him in deceit. And why do I tell you this? It's a biblical principle and God is faithful to his promises. What you sow, you will reap. And I don't want you to sow things that you're going to reap later on and regret. I want you to sow good things so that you are reaping good things. I don't want you to sow a life full of troubles that you're going to experience the rest of your life. I want you to understand that this book God gave us because he loves us. His guidance is in this book. He wants us to live for him. He wants us to do things that glorify him. And the sooner we learn that lesson and the sooner we trust God in his word, the better off we're going to be. Second principle is Jacob's life demonstrates that principle of reaping what you sow. It's Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. So what are you sowing right now? I'll let you answer the question. Here's number three that I get out of this text is that your most difficult trial may be your greatest blessing. Think about it. Joseph, his favorite son, was sold into slavery, went off to Egypt. But that trial that occurred in his life, did God ever do anything greater for Jacob than send Joseph to Egypt? If Joseph hadn't gone to Egypt, Joseph wouldn't have been in a position to interpret the dream. If he doesn't interpret the dream, he doesn't rescue them from the famine. If he doesn't rescue them from the famine, then perhaps Jacob's family never exists. And so even in tragedy, God has a plan to turn that tragedy into triumph. We just have to continue to be faithful and trust in God. And so perhaps it is the fact that Joseph being sent to Egypt was the greatest blessing that God ever gave to Jacob. But also, perhaps, it's the fact that he favored him so much he became an idol that he took him away. And if you put up any idol in your life, whether it's sports, whether it's a degree, whether it's a grade, whether it's another person, God tends to knock those idols down. Number four, it's the last one. Jacob's testimony began and ended with God. Verse three, he said, God Almighty appeared to me. Verse 21, God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Doesn't start with himself. He's gotten over me. He started to understand that this life, that this world, that this universe does not center on me. It centers on God. The sooner we understand that in our life and our decision making, the easier road you're going to have and the better it's going to be. God is the one. He's invited us to be part of his great mission. And when we understand that whatever God has given us to do, he's given us to do great things, and they're not trivial, and they're important in the eyes of God, and that we have a purpose and a mission in this life to be on mission with him, to give him glory, to love others. The sooner we recognize life's not all about us, but it's about God, and it's about loving others, the better we're going to be. And I think this is why he's in the Hebrews 11 passage, and I think this is why the Hebrews 11 writer chose this particular moment to highlight in his life, is that after all he had gone through, after all the ups and downs, the Hebrews 11 writer looks at us and he says to us, look at Jacob. Look at Jacob with everything he went through and at the end of his life he says this to his son. He says to his son, God's gonna be with you and God's gonna fulfill his promises. And so the writer to the book of Hebrews through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says to us here today, to all of us, that God is with you and God will be faithful to his promises. Do you live like that every day? If you do, it means you trust that what God's told us to do in this book It's for our good. It's not a set of rules that prevents us from doing things. It's guidance that helps us live a life that is a well-lived life fulfilled for him. You want to live a life that's well-lived? You don't start 20 years down the road. You start today. Whoever you want to be tomorrow, you've got to start becoming today. So I leave you with the central idea of the text. Jacob had learned God is faithful to be with you and to keep his promises. Have you learned that lesson yet? Let's pray. God, there are times in all of our lives, there are days where we don't live like we should. Lord, there are days when maybe we doubt you. So God, I pray that you would help us to remember passages like this in those difficult days. God, I pray that you would help us to be faithful, to lean on you and to trust in you. God, most of all, I thank you for your mercy and your grace that we don't deserve that you've extended to us. In good times and in bad times, Lord, you're still there and you're still stable and you're not a God that's up or down. You are a God that is faithful and we thank you for it. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live in a way that holds forth the gospel, to live in a way that glorifies Jesus. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you are dismissed